welcome to Charity Chats. I'm Dawn Ballard. In this episode, I'm joined by my colleague Vicky Luck to look into how charities create a case for support. For the public to feel confident to donate or fundraise, they need to trust in the work that an organisation is doing and be reassured that their support will make a difference. A case for support is the narrative that addresses this. It needs to be written towards the supporter or donor, clearly illustrating the charity's mission and vision for the future, whilst also telling the supporters why they should support this specific cause. To get this right isn't easy, but here we are speaking with Deborah Lang and Kate Arkell from Retina UK about how to do this. roles um, we have to appeal to our supporters and also look to grow our supporter base and part of that obviously is crucial to building compelling stories and ways of really grabbing interest so for the purpose of this podcast really we wanted to pick your brains and see how you go about building the right stories uh, for your supporter base so I think um, the key from our perspective is to look very carefully at who your supporters are um, and make sure that you tailor your communication um, to that group of people. Um, so we work for an organisation um, that supports people with um, a specific set of uh, medical conditions. Um, and so we know that a lot of our supporters are members of that community. And we try to make sure that we approach our communications in a way that's going to be compelling for them. Um, we do have other audiences as well, so um, trust funders and corporates, and obviously the messaging of those audiences are going to be um, different again. Um, so it's really making sure that you learn as much as you can about your supporters, that you do make sure you're approaching different groups of supporters in different ways, um, and that you take on board what they're going to want to hear from you in terms of those communications. Absolutely, that totally makes sense, and it's you know, knowledge is power, isn't it? Um, yeah. How do you work out your kind of elevator pitch? Like when you as an individual are bumping into people in the street or kind of what do you do? And obviously you're an advocate for your charity and you don't know who you might meet when. How do you kind of work out what your kind of elevator elevator pitch would be? Um, I think for us, um, we are aware that if we were talking to somebody for the first time who wasn't aware of what we do, um, that it can be quite a complex um, range of conditions to explain. So. Yeah. We try to um, keep it as simple as possible, uh, make it really clear um, what the challenges of living with one of these conditions might be and how we go about trying to um, make life better, um, whether that's through services or through obviously the medical research that we fund. Um, so it's very carefully about having a, a simple message um, that's um, compelling um, and communicating it as effectively as you can. And with passion as well, it's important to find um, the um, sort of emotive pull uh, within a cause when you're talking to somebody who has no idea of, sort of where you're coming from. Make it really clear what the need is and what's driving our work. Okay, yeah, I think you're right about passion. I mean, it's so important that, um, you know, there is that spark and that energy for whatever you're saying. You could be saying the, the most compelling uh, facts and figures, but without that um, enthusiasm behind it, it's uh, it's not going to be as um, impactful, is it? I suppose about inspiring them to get on board with your mission and your set of values as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And we're, uh, we're very clear what our values are as an organisation and, and that we're looking to work with people who share those values. So it's communicating that effectively as well. So as you mentioned before, obviously you're reaching out to various segments of your database, whether that be community supporters, event participants, 
corporates and trusts. So how do you go about starting to build a case for support, especially when you need to tailor it across those different audiences? So I think um, something that we uh, are very clear that we need to do is work collaboratively within our organisation when we're starting to look at a case for support. Um, so once we've identified the audience that we're looking to appeal to um, and what they might be interested in hearing from us, we will work um, within the fundraising team, the communications team, um, the development team to um, pull together um, everyone's expertise and really build something together. I mean, we're a small organisation, so that's perhaps easier for us than much larger organisations. Yeah, I mean, I'm quite new to this organisation and actually I found it really, really refreshing um, that there is a kind of lack of silo mentality. There, there really isn't that here. I found that, for example, I, I'm very much on the research development side of the organisation. Um, fundraising team are, are so clued up on what's going on in research, they really understand the way research works and so I think that makes the whole thing just so much easier in terms of they know where I'm coming from and and I have some understanding of where they're coming from and and it makes it so much easier to work together. Absolutely and actually um, you've also touched on the fact that at a research organisation there's so much cross-working with your different departments. Um, How do you deal with handling messages and communications for um, your lay audience, especially because the research landscape and how research funding works is quite a complex situation? I think think there's, there's two elements to it. We need to give people confidence that what we're funding is really sound research that actually is going to achieve something. Um, so there's an element of needing to um, communicate to people about our research funding process, about how we check that funding applications are really robust and that they're really, really good science. And we need to explain that process to people as well um, and explain to them that we'll reject applications for funding if they're simply not good enough. So there's that side of it, but there's also um, the actual science side and and making the science, which is sometimes quite complex, um, particularly in the area of genetics that we work in, into something that people can really understand. And I think there's a lot about um, making kind of making little stories out of it, making you know turning a, a cell into something like a piece of machinery that people can relate to, um, and things like that. So. Um, yeah, I think it's kind of a multi-layered process, really. Yeah, it sounds like it is, you know, it's very complex, and especially with those kind of um, difficulties with the, the research side that is sometimes so hard for people to kind of grasp. I think, yeah, the way you're kind of interpreting it to those different audiences and, and tweaking it as appropriate is, is really good. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think with science, the, the thing to do is, is to make it uh, not scary. So, um, you know, to turn it into language that people appreciate. But you also have to realise that some sections of the audience, I've found that particularly our, our audience here, some of them are very clued up and really science. <laughs> and they, some of them actually really want to delve into, you know, into in the depths of it. So it depends kind of on the communication. Obviously, if you're writing something for a magazine, you can keep it very chatty. And, and um, But you know, there may be a telephone conversation or a face-to-face conversation at some point where you have to really gauge how much of the science people want. And if they want more, you absolutely mustn't dumb it down too much. So um, it's about striking a balance, really. 
And do you think people are now becoming more inspired by um, sort of the deeper understanding and workings of the organisation and the funding streams than they have been before, maybe? I think when it comes to our community, um, they are interested in the detail, um, even if it's something that we might want to communicate to them in, in layman's terms. And um, they do want to really get into the research and understand what's going on, what the developments are and what that might mean for them. Um, I think when it comes to some of our other supporters, such as our trust funders and our corporate partners, um, they're more interested in, in hearing about the impact um, of their contributions um, on our community. Um, and some of the, the more emotive um, language would be used, I think, when we're communicating with them. Uh, whereas our community, um, as Kate said, they are quite clued up in many cases and they are very much interested in the, the detail of the research and, and how it's progressing. I think um, another aspect here that's actually quite unique, or I, coming from my background, is, is new to me in this organisation, is the, is, the, is the sheer number of different conditions that actually our charity covers, because they, there are a number of conditions with different sort of underlying genetic causes. And actually, that, that's quite an interesting one, because some of our projects that we fund are quite specific to certain conditions or certain genes even right. and it's about picking out for the right audiences um the things that are relevant to general progress and you know this is this might be about a specific condition but actually something that's going to come out of this project which is going to forward our understanding for our whole community or is going to make a bigger impact um, more widely so it's really about being very receptive to um, kind of the, the communications you're having with those individuals, what they're giving you back, and just really tailoring that message to them to make sure they they are engaged as much as possible. They're getting the information that they want and that inspires them for it to be mutually beneficial for you both. Now, I think because we are a small organisation, it, it does mean that we can communicate with our supporters in that sort of very personal way, and we can tailor our communication to them, which I think is fantastic. Actually, when it comes to building a case for support, actually, one of the key things um, is setting out the purpose of that. Um, and obviously, you know, you've mentioned identifying the audience and how that might change depending who it is you're speaking to. In terms of how you overcome challenges, um, maybe internally or even externally, um, to find the right messaging and ways of reaching out to um, that particular segment. How have you overcome some of those? I think um, one um, quite useful thing to do is to actually engage with certain members of your community who you know are very supportive and who you have a very strong relationship with um, and who you can actually use as a bit of a sounding board and okay. to feel like um, you're striking the right tone, whether you've got the sort of information in there that they would be interested to see. And you can have some of those discussions and get a bit of feedback, um, which can be very helpful, particularly if you are, you've reached a bit of a, um, a brick wall and you're struggling a bit with the messaging, perhaps there's disagreement within the team about what direction to take that case of support. It can be useful to get that external input into it. Um, and I think if you're working um, collaboratively on something like this, then um, you can engage with the external um, supporters to, to give you a little bit of guidance where you've got those strong relationships. So that's a really useful thing to do if you are having um, a few problems. Um, and definitely that collaborative approach is key because, um, you know, trying to do something on your own um, is not the best way to approach a case of support because having as many people as possible looking at it 
that will mean that it can be a really nice, well-rounded um, piece of work uh, and that any potential pitfalls will hopefully be picked up by somebody who's involved in that process. Because I think we've all probably had experience in the past where we put together something that we felt was a strong case to support and it hadn't worked quite how we had hoped. Right. And so sometimes having more eyes on it um, definitely helps because somebody will spot something that you won't have thought about because you always become too close to it if it's something that you're trying to write as individual you sometimes won't see um some of those bits and pieces that other others might spot so absolutely i mean there's only so much testing you can do really before you go out there as well um and hit the public with it um and i suppose it's quite similar for maybe corporates and trusts um in terms of how much research you can do um how you think you can match their strategic requirements and build partnership proposals or trust applications, for example. Um, and I suppose it's actually quite difficult to keep reviewing this on an annual basis when your work largely remains very similar. Yes, it, it can be a challenge. I mean, there are fortunately some trusts and foundations out there who will provide feedback um, after an application has been submitted, whether it's been successful or unsuccessful. So that can be quite useful in terms of refining um, a case of support as the years go on. Um, but you're right, it's, um, there is a need to review um, cases of support on a regular basis and to refresh them. Uh, I mean, as an organisation, we're quite small, we're quite flexible, we're quite dynamic. And so usually there's something new that we can build in every year that we're, we're undertaking in terms of our research activities, something new and exciting that we can talk about. Um, but if you, if you do find you're in a situation where your work is very much the same year after year, it is trying to find a sort of a new and unique angle that you can use. And that may not, if there's not necessarily much movement in terms of the actual work and activity of the organisation, it could be looking at something like um, making use of a, uh, a friendly researcher to be the face of an appeal and make it a bit more interesting in that sense, or a member of your community who's been involved in medical research who might be willing to support you with some of their personal experiences and weave some of that into the case just make it a bit different, a bit more compelling. Yeah, I mean, personal stories from researchers can sometimes be quite good, particularly if you're supporting, in some way, you're supporting a researcher's career, so you're perhaps funding a studentship or a fellowship like that. I think that that side of it is, is also um, really compelling, that actually you're building... You're building the future workforce. You're 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 investing in somebody's future career so that they can go on and take this research forward. Absolutely, and it makes it more personal as well. It puts a face to your um, to your work. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really, really, I like that about studentships and things like that. It's really good to have space that's associated with that, that you can do some um, some communications work with. They can perhaps write guest blogs for you, things like that. And it, and it really helps make it human. And their researchers are often really good at, at thanking supporters, explaining what a difference to their work and their career the funding is making. How would you kind of go about that? So you've got your kind of standard case support and now you want to kind of take it into something very sort of um, compelling and... Focused. Yeah, focused. And, and how do you... How would you kind of... And obviously you've got to work quite quickly with that. I guess um, what is quite good about the modern technology is you get feedback quite quickly the minute you take something out and can and as a small organisation you can react to that feedback quite quickly. But um, how would you go about sort of developing it in the first place? So I think once you're um, confident you've got a fairly sort of robust case 
court and you're looking to go out um, in the form of an appeal, um, it's again making sure that as, when you're adapting that case to court into an appeal that you always are mindful of the audience that you're sending it to um, and are very careful that you're communicating with them in the best possible way and appealing to them in the best possible way. Um, it's making sure that your case to support feels relevant to them. So as Kate said, some of our work can be quite gene-specific. Um, we are going out with an appeal that is around something that has um, a very specific um, gene involved in the research. It's trying to explain how that work might be relevant to everybody. What you don't want to do is to make people feel um, like they're being asked to support something that potentially isn't of interest to them. Um, but being able to explain relevance at work to them. Um, thinking about um, doing some um, analysis on your database so that you're not just looking at how people want to be communicated with, but you're looking at um, how they've given in the past, so the levels that they've given um, and uh, what they've given to, so that you can make sure that your ask is appropriate for them. Um, so there's, you know, the general things around um, direct mail. So making suggested donation levels that are appropriate. There's also evidence that in addition to having a letter, it's important to have that sort of additional uplift device in there. So whether that is, um, as Kate was saying, something quite personal around a researcher or a PhD student or somebody who's involved in the research to add a bit of colour and a bit of interest, um, something that someone can really get into and, and have a nice read of if they're interested in learning a little bit more. So that can be quite as well looking at when you when you're timing your appeal so that you're sending it at the sort of right time during the year you're looking at your other communications and that you're not overloading people with too much at one time um, and that as part of your communication strategy you have thought about reporting back to people as well so it's not just a series of appeals and asks it's a, a cycle that involves going back to people and saying this is what you supported us with and this is the impact that your contribution has made so it's building those relationships in a very sort of organic and personal way. Absolutely. And how do you um, normally plan on following up um, post-appeal? So we would normally, people who have given a very significant donation, we would um, set up a very tailored stewardship programme of um, personal and individual reporting. Um, for our wider community, we have a newsletter that goes out three times a year. So when we have done a significant appeal at some stage, we'll always make sure that we have a follow-up article in our newsletter that talks about the research that's been funded and the progress that's been made. We try and make sure that that thread is, is continued through our communications. Um, and our website as well, so we'll make sure that the research area of our website is up to date and people can go on there and find out the latest news in terms of the projects that they've funded. Um, so, it's, yes, it's important to, to always bear that in mind when you're looking at your communication, what you need to be uh, reporting back on. And actually, just to take a step back all the way to the beginning of our um, conversation about appeals or even slash campaigns, um, how internally, um, throughout any of your careers, have you decided um, internally what the focus should be for your appeal or campaign? It's um, quite a fine balance, I would say. <laughs> the needs of the organisation in terms of what your internal priorities are. So there would always be um, some research that um, the organisation is very keen to fund as a matter of urgency. Um, but it's balancing that against what you what will actually appeal to your audience. And sometimes those might not be the same thing. 
Um, so it's trying to sometimes reach a compromise actually internally about um, what your organisation might see as a key priority and what as a fundraiser you might think is actually going to be appealing to your audience because there's no point putting together um, a campaign and spending a huge amount of time on it when you know in your heart of hearts that what you're attempting to ask people to contribute to is not going to be of interest to them. So you do need to have those internal discussions and identify something that's both a priority for your organisation and appealing to your audience. And certainly um, in our organisation now, we, we do tend to find that we can get those two to align, which is fantastic. Um, in my career, I suppose that's not always been the case. Um, and I think it's it is making sure that you've got strong relationships with your colleagues internally, um, that the culture of the organisation is such that you can have some of those challenging discussions with colleagues when potentially you're being asked um, to build an appeal around something that you just don't feel is a strong enough ask. Um, so I think that's really important, being able to um, put forward um, a fundraiser perspective on, the, on these kinds of things. lead us by example for um, some best practice. That was a brilliantly wordy question, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I might start again. <laughs> I mean, going to obviously the other end of the spectrum in terms of the size, the size of the organisation and, and um, you know, the sort of the budget that we're talking about, but actually um, I've come from a, a background of neurology research charities and neurodegeneration research charities and Actually, Alzheimer's Research UK does some of their research communication incredibly well. They have something called a statistics hub, the Dementia Statistics Hub. Um, they focus very much on dementia in general rather than Alzheimer's specifically because I think dementia is quite an impactful word now in our society. It's something that we're fearful of. Um, but they have a statistics hub where you can very quickly get very good snapshots, very kind of high impact numbers around things like the economic impact of dementia and the capacity of the dementia research workforce and things like that and comparison from other disease areas and I think that makes a really strong case actually supporting dementia research generally even to somebody who's not personally affected that's quite a powerful tool yeah I they're think. quite strong hooks aren't they so people do kind of um, do well with numbers and putting it in that kind of real world context yeah, and also I think they also do some headlines around what of what their research is, is achieving in very sort of simple bullet form ways. You know, they kind of uh, mash everything together and, and give some overall headlines, um, which is also, you know, um, is useful. But then again, they are a much bigger organisation, so they have a massive research portfolio, whereas I think it's easier for us in some ways to say what we're achieving because we've just got a limited number, a fairly limited number of projects and we can pull out the kind of really big achievements probably um, quite easily and share those with our with our community. Yeah, sort of pros and cons of both, aren't there? Because the, the small organisation means you can get all of your staff team involved and communicate things out and react very quickly. But then as a bigger organisation, you've got a lot more opportunities and examples of things to pull upon. So, yeah, pros and cons of both. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I think, oh, it must be it must be so much easier when you've got so much more going on. But actually, as I say, I think there's a bit of a balance.
you do need to pack a punch. Do you have any advice for any others out there? Um, I think the, the key thing to remember is just because you're a small charity, it doesn't mean that you can't be ambitious about what you want to achieve. Yeah. And it's important to communicate that ambition and that passion um, to your supporters, um, particularly when you're, uh, as we are, a small organisation that's quite condition-specific. You do have a community that is really passionate, really enthusiastic. They really want to hear about what you're doing. Yeah. So as long as you're communicating to them effectively, you will find ways to, to get them on board with what you're doing. Um, and I think, as I touched on earlier, when you are small, it does mean that you can take these really personalised approaches to your supporters, which is a huge benefit. And I don't think something that should be underestimated. It is a an advantage that we have over larger charities is that we can have these really personal relationships and, and personifications. Um, and I think the other thing that I would say is um, planning is absolutely key. We've touched on the process of putting together a case of support, taking a cross-departmental approach, um, because if you plan carefully, it means that if you do have limited resources, which at a, a small charity you do, um, then it will mean that you can work as efficiently as possible and you're encouraging you know, everyone buying into it as well then, aren't you, as well, which only makes it a, a stronger ask. Definitely, definitely. You do want to get that buy-in from everyone in the organisation so that everyone is happy to contribute and pull together and, and create something really compelling and exciting. Brilliant. Well, it's really interesting. And thank you so much for your time. Um, I think we've got quite a lot of kind of uh, learnings from that and things that will be really useful for our listeners. So very much appreciate um, you being so thorough in uh, those examples and everything. Thank you very oh. much, Deborah. And thank you very much, Kate. No problem. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Thanks again to Deborah and Kate for their time and insight regarding this. I think they really highlighted how important it is to get this message right and how that isn't necessarily easy. But with strong cross-team communication and with organisational commitment, you can create something that really gets to the heart of your charity's message and that supporters will identify with. So if you want more information on this, you can find links and resources on our website, charitychat.org.uk. We are also on Facebook, LinkedIn, and my personal favourite social media is Twitter, as Vicky does an excellent job with some great gifts on there. We would love to hear your thoughts on this or any of our other episodes, so please do get in touch. And if there's anything else you'd be interested in us covering, then let us know. So all that is left for me to do is to thank our sponsors. Thanks to Giant Squid Audio Labs for sponsoring our podcast kit. For Madka Askmit for website design, RR Yard Photography for the pro bono website images, and finally, Forrester Falls for providing our soundtrack. And I'll let them play us out now. Thanks again for listening. Bye.